know, you've got to let the kids know that you do have a base of knowledge, but at the same time, and I use this in my classroom every year, I tell my kids, guys, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to go up to the board and I'm going to write plus one instead of minus one. I make mistakes just like you do. And letting them know that you're human and letting them see those mistakes, like don't brush them off or try and cover them up. Like, no, own it because then they can relate to you. You're going to learn something that you want to keep or you're going to learn something that you don't want to use, but you can learn something from everybody about anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the High School Coaches Club. I'm your host, Max Price, and I do not take it for granted that you've chosen to click that play button. And I continue to be amazed that so many coaches are benefiting from this podcast, the weekly newsletter, and the bi-weekly Twitter chats. To be in this position, uh, to be providing a space for those of us who are deeply invested in high school student-athletes, that's something I do not take lightly. I promise you that. Just know that what we as coaches have the privilege of doing, and that's impacting young people in some of their most formative years, is one of the most important jobs in the world today. So thank you, not only for tuning in, which I'm very appreciative of, but more importantly for being committed to personal growth so that your athletes can reap the benefits of a positive four years under your care. And a huge thank you to Will and the gang over at Netting Pros for sponsoring the High School Coaches Club. In addition to the design aspect of facility improvement, netting professionals specialize in the fabrication and installation of custom netting, digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, benches, cubbies, and so much more. Obviously, baseball and softball are huge markets for netting pros, but they have customers in football, soccer, lacrosse, track and field, golf, and just about any sport you can imagine. They are truly making facilities better all across the country, providing high-quality products and services to recreational, college, professional, and of course, high school facilities, fields, courses, and stadiums throughout the country. You can contact them today by calling 844-620-2707, emailing info at nettingpros.com, visiting their website, nettingpros.com, or by checking Netting Pros out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. They're amazing, and they're improving programs one facility at a time. This episode features Mickey Sapanik. He's an assistant football and baseball coach at Frisco Liberty High School in Texas. Coach Sapanik has a ton to offer up in this conversation, where he deep dives into how assistant coaches can have a profound impact on the culture, direction, and success of a high school sports program. He's a great assistant now. He'll be a great head coach in the future. So let's do it. Let's dive in. It's episode 44 with Mickey Sapanik. All right, Mickey Sapanik, thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, we we connected through, I don't even know when we connected through Twitter. I have no idea. But um, anyway, here we are. So I'm pretty excited yeah, to have you on. Absolutely. You know, I we've we've tried to been getting on the past couple of weeks, but I'm glad we're here tonight. So yeah, me too. I wanted to start with this because, uh, you know, when we kind of talked, you sent over some stuff off air. Um, you said that you a lot of your players don't find out about this and, and some of them may not even know about it. So I thought, let's just get it out in the open because I think it's pretty cool. And it's it's kind of weird. I know sometimes to talk about our own family this way, but I think let's we should start here because it kind of sets probably the background for for probably your passion for baseball, or at least possibly where it came from. Tell us, tell us about your dad a little bit. Well, uh, so my dad, um, he graduated from Ypsilanti High School in 1984 and played, no, 82, and played the 82, 83, 84 season at Eastern Michigan University. Um, 
And then in 84, after his junior year, uh, where he was an All-American first baseman, um, he ended up getting drafted in the sixth round by the Braves. Uh, he actually, one thing I don't think I mentioned to you, he actually was released by the Braves. Uh, Hank Aaron was his hitting instructor and told him he didn't like his swing. So um, <laughs> telling on my dad a little bit, but, uh, you know, he after that, he uh, ended up going to the Yankees, spent six years in their organization, um, ended up with a, a short stint with the Reds at the end of his final year. Um, but with that, I mean, he's – it's actually been kind of cool for me. When I was younger, we'd go watch the Rangers when, you know, Bucky Dent and Buck Showalter were on staff. And so he'd be chatting with them because they were his uh, – they were coaching him. Um, and then there's a funny story. So I think it was when I was in fourth grade, soon as we got out of school, me and my buddy – my dad and his dad, uh, we jumped to the game, to a Ranger game. The Yankees are in town. And so my dad, we, we get there early for batting practice, and my dad goes over to the first base dugout, and he's talking with Buck Showalter and Bucky Dent and those guys. And so we're kind of – me and my buddy are kind of hanging out. And behind the plate, I see Jim Layritz, who was another one of my dad's teammates. Um, and he's just hitting off a tee straight into the, you know, they got a, a sock net going into the backstop. So me and my buddy, we kind of walk over there and they've got everything kind of roped off about 10 rows up. That way we're not all the way in there. And so I just remember screaming down, Hey, Hey, Laritz, do you know who Rob Sapanic is? <laughs> and uh, so he's immediately just stops what he's doing on the tee. And he looks up, he goes, yeah, he goes, I'm his son. So he calls me down. So me and my buddy, we walk down to the front row right behind home plate. And um, so we're chatting it up for a while. Like I have no, I'm, I'm like 10 years old. I have no idea what's going on. So sure enough, my dad, who's still over by the first base dugout, looks over. There is a crowd of people behind me wearing me out. Like quit hogging Layritz. Let us, you know, they want to be fans and stuff. And I'm just this 10-year-old kid catching up with some guy I don't remember ever meeting. Um, so we end up, you know, hanging out right there. My dad and uh, my buddy's dad, they come over. We had seats in, like, the nosebleeds. Nobody came to the row that we were sitting at. So we ended up sitting, like, two rows up right behind. We're in the picture for the entire game, you know, on camera behind screen. Me and my buddy kept running up and – seeing each other it was it was a trip but it was a pretty uh pretty fun little coincidence right there the fact that I was able to uh make that connection he happened to be right there behind the plate so it was a it was a good time good memory yeah you said that you were you were you know too young to remember your dad even even playing so Mm -hmm. kind of experiencing that would be kind of a, a weird deal to like your dad was you know obviously within the ranks of all these guys oh yeah like my dad's got a picture with him and Bernie Williams, both in their uniforms. I mean, seeing the the New York gray jersey, um, you know, because that was their road jerseys as well. And watching, so there's actually an old, uh, the very first baseball, Sunday night baseball, not baseball night, Sunday night baseball uh, was a spring training game for the Yankees and can't remember who they're playing. Well, Don Matting was the first baseman at the time, and this was the year that my dad, he made the big league camp uh, for spring training. And so we'll just fast forward to the end. I think it's taped over like an episode of the A-Team or something. 
Um, but you know, Don's playing the first seven innings and the, my dad used to say he'd come in after the seventh and he'd just, you know, point to him out to the field and, and Mattingly would leave. And so he'd get the mop up innings in the late, late part of uh, spring training games, but that game he happened to get in and get in that bat. Um, he used to show it to us all the time and he works a three, two count and ends up getting, uh, taking it to the warning track. Couldn't quite get it out, but he hit, he hit enough home runs in his career. Um, you know, but that, that one didn't quite make it out. It was, it was oppo field though. So can't give it too much, too much hard time. Yes. So that, you know, I assume at some level growing up in a house where your dad had, you know, that level of success, probably bled into you enjoying baseball at some level? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't remember ever not being around the game. Mm-hmm. There are pictures of me when I when I first picked up a baseball and bat, I was throwing it left-handed, swinging it left-handed, and I think that's because all I ever saw was my dad at home. And then once I started going to more games and stuff, as I, you know, got to be from, you know, one to two and two to three, um, I just automatically started throwing with my right hand because that's, I, I think it's because I saw everybody else doing it. So um, I was always around. Uh, we actually moved around quite a bit. Um, just wherever he was playing, that's where home was. So we live in Ypsilanti in the off season, uh, right by Eastern Michigan, where he was from and where we both went to school. Um, and then, you know, if we were in all, if he was playing in Albany, we were in Albany. If he was in Columbus, we were in Columbus, uh, spring training, we'd be down in Florida. So we, wherever he was, that's where home was. Um, and I watched a lot of baseball games before I remember watching any baseball games. <laughs> and, you know, I, I remember the, the T-ball in Mississippi when his career was over. Um, it was just always a part of the game. And as soon as they offered fall baseball, I think it was I was eight going into my nine U season um, and they had nine, ten fall baseball. And I said, I'm done with soccer. You know, I just I, I always wanted to play baseball. That's awesome. So then, you know, obviously you you end up kind of carving your own path and heading off into high school at some point. So um, let's kind of start your story there then. So can you take us back to your high school days, uh, where you went, what sports you played, what what your involvement was like? Yeah, so um, I actually uh, started off as a three sport athlete. I played football, basketball and baseball until um, I realized that the guy who played my position in basketball was about six inches taller than me and he could shoot the three better than me. So uh, I, I quickly, you know, five, nine shooting guards at the, the highest classification in Texas. That wasn't going to be my future. So I continued with football and I continued with baseball all the way through. Um, there was actually a point in time where I was considering not playing baseball anymore, going into my senior year. Um, there was a lot going into that. Um, we can get into it if you want, but uh, no, I played, uh, I was a two-year letter winner in football. Um, didn't make the varsity in baseball until my senior year. I actually received my uh, scholarship to Eastern Michigan before I played a varsity inning. Um, but it, it also ha- didn't have anything to do with summer ball because those guys at uh, Eastern Michigan, um, they weren't coming down, coming down south. So it, it happened to be worked out where I went to up. A, I went up to a camp my freshman year, um, 
we were up there for uh, actually my great grandfather's funeral, and there happened to be a uh, you know prospect camp or tra- kid camp at the time, and so um, you know we kind of made it into that. Um, and then when I came up right before my senior year started or for baseball, um, my dad just wanted to kind of take me up there. And since the head coach at the time was the assistant, when he was there, he just wanted to see if he had done right by me. Um, and so I went up to a camp, they called a couple weeks before and they said, Hey, we have you on our camp list. We also have you on our prospect list. What do you say? We just turned into official visit. So I went through that whole thing. And then at the end of the visit, um, they ended up offering me and I, uh, I actually had to, uh, tell them that I was going to need a, a little bit of time to think about it because, um, a couple weeks before that I had gone down to Trinity university, which is a division three school in San Antonio. And I was going to go play football there. Um, and then by the time I, we were on the plane, I was talking to my dad. I was like, I'm an idiot if I do that. Like, D, go pay for D3 football, paying $40,000 a year. Yeah. Or I have this Division One scholarship, which, you know, they combined athletic and academic, and I was a fairly smart kid, so it was actually going to end up being a full ride. It's like, what am I doing here? Why am I even thinking about this? So as soon as the fight landed, I called the coach back. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. We we go on ahead and sign the paper, send the papers. I'm ready to go. So <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, and nowadays it's weird. So we, I graduated from high school the same year you did uh, back in 2007 mm-hmm. and the, the, things have changed a lot. And, you know, now there's quite a few kids who are committing to, you know, division one colleges uh, in baseball, particularly before they've even like started high school yet. And oh, yes. so I just think like, as, as you're talking and you're like, well, I, I committed before I played a varsity inning, I'm thinking, man, but and now we've got kids who are committing before they've even walked into their freshman year of high school. It's it's things have changed a lot since then. It is incredibly different. And the the crazy thing is because and my dad is the first one to say it. We had zero idea on the recruiting scene or anything like that. Um, You know, obviously, I coach summer ball. Uh, Now, that's part of the reason why, you know, we couldn't get together earlier. Um, But we had no idea what it was like when I was going through it. You know, my dad knew the game and he could coach me, but as far as everything else went, we were kind of at a loss. So um, it actually changed quite a bit for my brother. He was a later sign as well. Um, But that's one thing that I really try and talk to my guys about on the baseball side um, at Liberty, just because, just because you don't sign early doesn't mean it's over. There are so many kids so many different opportunities. Um, you know, that that's the other thing that a lot of kids don't realize. And I'm really glad it's starting to come to a, a, a rise in, you know, junior college. That's starting to take over, I feel like, which is amazing and great. Um, I've got a really good relationship with Clay Cox at Paris Junior College, yeah. which is actually where my brother played as well. He didn't play for Clay, um, but I've built up a relationship with him. And, you know, the, the old – back when you and I were going through it, junior college was for the guys who couldn't make the grades. Um, (laughs) You know, it was kind of a stop point, but now it's not the same. Like you look at, at Paris, they're cleaning up, you know, the, the grade, this, the grade point average. I mean, their, their team GPA is stupid high and they've got so many 4.0s. And I mean, it's not a 
for the bad academic kids. It's for guys who just need more time to play. And that's what just about every baseball player needs. So with the JUCO route stuff getting bigger, um, I try and really expand on, you know, NAIA isn't just something set off to the side. I, that's what I thought, I, to be flat out honest, um, before my time at Lyon, I had never heard of NAIA. I didn't know anything about it. And when I, before I stepped on campus, I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, step in and be a big fish in a small pond. And I was dead flat wrong. <laughs> um, you know, I, there were guys there that were better than anybody that I ever played with. Um, guys that we played against that were uh, phenomenal. Um, you know, it, it's not just a, something to set there. There's so much good baseball out there. And if you want to play, I've always believed that there's a spot out there for you. So just be patient, keep working. And if you want it bad enough, we'll find a place for you because I, I can attest to it. There is a spot for anybody and everybody that wants to play this game um, at the next level. It might You might have to go out there to find it, uh, but there, there's a place for you. There is. And, and one of the greatest things about Twitter for all the nonsense that it has on there, uh, it has kind of created this opportunity for kids to find those places. Like you're talking about how when you and your dad were going through it and same for me, I, I knew nothing about recruiting, getting recruited. I knew like literally nothing about it. The Internet obviously was around then, but it certainly wasn't what it is now. And now you know you just toss a video of yourself up and you you know, tag like flat ground or something like that. And all of a sudden your your videos in front of you know, potentially thousands, if not tens of thousands of college coaches all around the country, just like that. And so it just, there's, I just go back to like my high school days. I remember my dad wanting to get us like one of those, I uh, can't remember what company it was at the time. I don't think they're around anymore, but one of like recruiting services where you pay them, they then are like the middleman that go out and they send emails on your behalf and everything and try to find colleges for you. And uh, it has just changed so, so much from even, you know, 13, 14, 15 years ago. Oh, no doubt. I mean, the, the flat ground app, that way you don't have to tag all the different colleges and all the yeah. different coaches, you know, in, in the tweet, you can just put that one out there and they, they put it out for you. Um, you know, it's, it's so much different. Then you've got the field level, which is a free kind of version uh, of the same thing, just a different platform. Um, but no, it's, it's incredible. And, and you, you almost have to for, one of the guys that I connected with uh, during COVID was Anthony Pla up at um, mm -hmm. Lincoln. And he was, I mean, they do so much of it. Granted, a lot of it was due to COVID, but they had to do so much recruiting in that way. And to get the caliber players that he wants, he's got to go through, uh, you know, video recruiting because they don't have the budget to get out everywhere, but they don't want to be localized to just, their small pod that they can get to easily. They're, they're out there trying to grind too. So, you know, the ability to, to sit on your computer and recruit that way is, I don't know how they do it, how they, how they recruit off a of video. They're wiser than me. That's one of the biggest reasons why I don't want to coach college is because <laughs> of recruiting. Um, I like the game. I like coaching the game, but I would not know the first thing about recruiting. And so that's, um, my hat's off to them, but yeah, it, it's a totally different game now. And it's, um, it's definitely interesting seeing the kids go through it from year to year. 
yeah, and it changes so much and kids are constantly coming for advice and I'm like, well, I can give you what I know and connect you with guys who know better and, uh, it, but it's, it's certainly changed a lot. So you were at, you, you, then you, you go to Eastern Michigan, you played there, obviously at some point you, you head off to Lyon college, like you mentioned, the NAIA, um, kind of get the experience there. And then, um, obviously you got in, like you mentioned, obviously getting into coaching, did you know, like, as you're going through all this in high school and college that you wanted to coach, or is that something that came along at, at a later point, or maybe just as you're in your last few years at Lyon? So I always knew that I wanted to do something in sports. When I was in middle school, I actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon because that was about the only profession that I could think of where I was going to be involved in sports. Um, And then I got into high school and I didn't really think a whole lot of it. Um, You know, I was kind of going back and forth and deciding between a few things. And if I'd gone down to Trinity, they had a a five-year you know, bachelor's and master's program. So, and I would have done that for engineering. Um, but it was after my last football game, uh, I had a coach, Jim Sample. He was our linebacker coach and defensive coordinator. And he had asked me if I ever thought about being a coach because he thought I'd make a good one. And I actually ran into him at my first. So uh, Texas High School Coaches Association, they put on, um, a convention every year. And so my first one, when I was at my current job at Liberty, it was about five years ago. Uh, I actually ran into him. He had, he had changed jobs a few times and he was working in a private school. But you know, one of the first things I did was I walked to him outside of that Mexican restaurant and shook his hand and said, I just wanted to thank you because I really took what you said to heart. And I really think that that's why I'm here. So I, I knew going into Eastern Michigan that I was going to coach. Um, I changed my major a few times. It started off as a math major uh, because, you know, in Texas, we do get we we have to teach in order to coach high school. Um, so I was going to be a math teacher originally. And then I ran into Calc 2 and Calc 3. And I didn't that didn't agree with me the first time around. <laughs> um, so I changed to history. And I had a psych minor because I was very interested in sports psychology. Um, and then when I transferred, uh, I was actually going to trans. I, I wasn't going to keep playing um, before I got to Lyon. I was actually going to be done. Um, that was actually a very different story on how I got to going. But uh, I was going to go to University of North Texas and go into science uh, and be a science teacher. And then – when the opportunity to go to Lyon came up, they didn't have uh, science within their teaching department or their teaching education program. So I ended up switching back to math. Uh, Calc two and Calc three much easier the second time around. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and so now I've got those 39 hours of college math to my name. And I guess I can call myself a mathematician. So that's what my degree says. That's hilarious for us at the, I went to Pacific university up here in Oregon and for us, the the snag that we always hit going like the science route was the the chemistry class, and it was just yeah. like it just made or broke people. And I there was quite a few of us who literally went for two class periods, and then we dropped dropped chemistry and changed majors. <laughs> we're like we're just not going to get through this roadblock. Chem was one of the ones I I didn't mind biology. Chem was okay, but physics was my jam. And that's what I, if I was going to teach science, that would be the science I teach is physics. Yeah. I, I, that's one of the interesting things about Texas. I know in, I, I, 
I don't know. I don't have a statistic in front of me, so I can't claim this to be true. But I, I would assume most states would allow you to coach if you weren't a teacher. But Texas is very different in that sense, in that they, you, you have to be a teacher to coach, um, which I think has its positives and negatives too. I, I teach, so I, I see the the benefit of it. But I also, I also am able to hire a lot of assistants who aren't teachers, and they bring different viewpoints. And there's there's benefits for sure that come from that. Um, it's just kind of it's just one of the unique things, I guess, uh, about Texas sports at the high school level. Yeah. And that's actually interesting on your side of it. Um, you know, having the ability to kind of have both that blend of staff where you've got the teachers and you have the non-teachers. I'm actually very, I've heard you talk a little bit about it. Um, but I'm actually very curious as to, you know, how many guys go from not teaching to teaching or teaching to not teaching and just coaching uh, you know, if they see the the other the other lawn and see if, you know, want to dip into the whole grass is greener element um, and get in and out of get in or out of teaching based on, you know, their peers. We've had a you few. Of that? Yeah, I've seen some guys not on my staff, but I have seen some people who were teachers who uh, it is really hard because, uh, you know, you hire somebody as an assistant coach who try to think like. Um, maybe like works as a, like maybe owns his own landscaping business. So you see like mm-hmm. the freedom he has to eat lunch whenever he wants, go to lunch, <laughs> you know, he can, uh, yeah. he can leave work whenever he wants. He can you know, adjust can his schedule to make things to. work. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so there is, there's a, a definite like uh, exposure to like what quote unquote the real world is like. And so mm-hmm. I have I've seen a couple of teachers who ended up leaving um, the teaching side and kept coaching. Um, I've had a few people that I've seen who were uh, coaches who found that they really enjoyed working with high school kids, um, with teenagers, because teenagers can be scary to people who don't know about being around teenagers if you kind of are from the outside. So when you break in and start coaching them, I've seen a few people who then take the route to become a teacher, but it's it's such a pain to become a teacher because of the different jumps you have to go through, the like up here, you got to do student teaching. So you essentially have to quit whatever job you have and work for free, uh, yep. you know, for the entire semester, you know, teaching to make it happen. Um, so there's there's not a lot of guarantee attached to it. From a mm-hmm. head coaching standpoint, it's really nice having assistants who aren't teachers in, because if there's something that needs to get done on the field uh, or if they need to go check the field to see if it's playable for the night and I can't get out of the classroom, they're able to go do it. So there's... There's some definite benefits to it, but um, yeah, I've seen it kind of go both ways. Um, gotcha. I, I I get why Texas does it. I think it is really important. I think there, I think you should have someone on your staff that is a teacher in the building, just because I think there's so much you don't know about happening. I mean, it's little things like prom that happened or an assembly that happened that day, or just Correct. going. I just think there's so much that happens inside a school building that you don't know about unless you're in there, or if you have you know someone on staff who's in there. Well, and, and you're exposed to the the players so much more, and you not only right. that, but you're exposed to their peers, and you can kind of you know get the temperature of your team without having to talk to a single one of your kids on your team. Yeah, or and sometimes you have other students who come up and tell you something about your one of your players, and you're like, okay, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I, I I see I see why Texas does it. At the same time, it creates this lack of flexibility that makes it you know, there might be some really great coaches who 
they just they're not a teacher and so you know you kind of lose out on that part too so i don't know there's probably a good middle ground somewhere but um there we are so anyway you uh you (laughs) dove in obviously you started coaching um you're you know you're at at liberty at this point but uh can you kind of take me back like the the route you've taken to end up where you are right now yeah so um i actually possibly could have petitioned for another year based on um just what happened while i was at eastern michigan i was Uh, told that I probably could. I wasn't really sure of the process. And so I actually stopped playing um, in 2012. That was my senior year. And then I still had to do my student teaching at Lyon. And that was actually a year long. And so I did that uh, while I was a student assistant. Um, So they allowed me to stay on staff throughout the fall. There was another former player that, that did it with me. He was a catcher and I was an outfielder. And I believe he graduated at semester, uh, whereas I actually had to continue on because of my um, because of my student teaching. And so I was balancing that. And it, it, it was a, a really good experience for me because they kind of, I, I, I was an infielder all my life. When I went to Lyon, I played the outfield. And so it allowed me to dive into an element like, the only thing I knew was what I had learned while I was there. So I could continue um, very similar to the way it's been taught the past at least two years while I was playing there. And so we didn't really drop off and allow the head coach who was uh, also, he also had some outfield experience. He could kind of do some other things. Uh, but that was a fantastic uh, start. I couldn't have asked for a better um, jump into coaching. Um, I I had done it in the summers, but it was way different doing it at that level. I threw a lot of batting practice. I was not good at all. I was absolutely terrible. Um, The lefties hated me because I I don't know if I hit very many right-handed hitters, but I would hit at least one, if not two lefties every batting practice. Um, You know, I, I do remember also the first time I made it through an entire batting practice round because, you know, when you're at that level, you've got 40 minutes. You, get, If you want to get your hitters in, you got to throw strikes. Um, and so I'd get tapped out sometimes at the beginning of the year. But the time that I made it through, I mean, it was the the entire – everybody in the background was cheering for me. All the coaches were clapping. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time. Um, but, no, that was I, – I learned so much more than just coaching. Um, we had a great time uh, on the road and everything, and I, I love those – Guys on that staff, uh, you know, Tony Repke, Gary Severe, Robbie Holmes, they they really indoctrinated me into the profession. Um, and then I came back home. I always knew that I wanted to come back to Texas. So I was staying at my parents, just trying to figure out where I was going to be at. Trying, I was going on interviews throughout the summer. Finally, I get a head call or a, a, a former coach of mine. Well, he wasn't a coach of mine, but a very good coaching family friend of ours. He actually called my mom at like 8 a.m. on a Friday morning, said, hey, where, where's Mickey at? You know, can we get him to an interview? So uh, mom called me, woke me up, uh, <laughs> said, hey, you need to drive up to Pilot Point. I said, where? I had never heard of it. It was only like 30 minutes away from the house, but it was up north. It was a smaller school. Uh, so, you know, I throw on uh, every other interview. I was going in with my suit and tie and everything and. They said, no, just just show up. So I at least put on some khaki shorts and a polo. Um, but I went in. I met with the head football coach, um, met with the middle school. It was a middle school job. Uh, so I met with the middle school principal. 
they liked me well enough. So I taught, uh, that first year I actually didn't teach. I was a math teacher, but I was more of a, it actually allowed me to do my student teaching over again, kind of, which was very nice. I, allow, I it allowed me to do some different things, um, and be very flexible. Um, uh, but I taught, or I coached football, basketball track at the middle school. And then I volunteered, uh, at the high school, uh, they actually put me on as the running backs coach, and then I helped out with the outfielders. So as long as I you know, got my middle school duties done when middle school was over, I could go help out with the high school. So I spent three years as a volunteer assistant uh, with football and baseball before I ended up moving to Liberty um, into my current position now. And so, uh, you know, obviously teaching middle school at the time uh, and coaching high school kids gives you a good view of, I think, um, kind of the, I don't know, athletic growth that, that kids probably go through uh, from the, you know, from the time they come in as sixth graders or whatever till till they're leaving their senior year. Um, pretty cool opportunity. I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, you kind of just dive into high school and that's where you are for the rest of your life. And um Awesome that you got the experience, not only at the collegiate level, which, like you said, probably an awesome start. But then you also got to coach at the middle school level while you were also, you know, dual coaching at the high school level, too. I, I 100 percent agree with the idea that if you do coach football, you need to spend, uh, you know, one, two, three years down and coach middle schoolers because it will change the way you view coaching. Um, you will talk to the kids different. You will view the kids different. You know, I know that a lot of coaches, they talk about when you become a dad, that kind of changes who you are as a coach. Um, you know, try going through bus training, getting your CDL, feeling good about everything. And I'm this is coming from personal experience. Um, and you get that CDL on your hands and you're good to drive a bus and you're thinking everything's gravy. And then they load up that bus and you look in that rearview mirror and you see those 30, 40, 50 middle school souls <laughs> in those, it, it, it changes you a little bit yeah. in that moment. Um, I remember, I mean, that that's, that's a, a firsthand story. So my first time driving a bus, it's about an hour away and there's one way, uh, which is packed with lights and traffic and stuff. But that was the only way I knew. And one of the guys that I was coaching with, he was kind of a, it was a mentor to me, Jeff Price. He was the basketball coach. Um, we were talking about it. He's like, what, what about these back roads? I was like, I, I don't know, man. I don't know if I feel comfortable going around all these twists and turns and I'm not familiar enough. And so he finally talked me into it. And like I said, I look up and I see all those souls and it kind of, it, it got to me a little bit. So I'm driving, I come out of the parking lot and I turned right. Well, to go the route that we talked about, you were supposed to turn left. <laughs> and there was a way where if, you know, I could turn left a little bit further down the road and I just drove straight by it. So we finally get about 10, 15 minutes down the road and he kind of comes up to me and goes, Hey, so, uh, you decided to go the other way, huh? He's like, yep, I guess we did. Sure, sure did. Here we go. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it totally, totally, you know, threw me back, but working with those middle school kids, you see so many different things and you, you know, they're going through so many different um, growing stages physically and mentally and emotionally and all that stuff. That middle school group, like there's, there's a lot to coaching those middle schoolers that, you know, I think every coach probably needs to spend at least a little bit of time coaching them 
and not just like at a camp, like spend a year and get to see what they're going through on a day-to-day basis. Um, Cause it, it's not easy to coach middle school kids, but it is incredibly gratifying, incredibly rewarding. I don't know if I could ever do it again, but I'm so glad for the, for the years that I did it. So yeah. You did it. You, you had the experience and now you're comfortable at the high school level, obviously. Um, so you're at Liberty High School now. Can you kind of just explain to people what your, your your couple of roles are there? Yeah, so when I came on, uh, it was a varsity of baseball assistant job. It was actually – so the head coach at Pilot Point when I was there, he had taken a job over there to be the JV baseball coach and D-line coach. Uh, he was our offensive coordinator and head baseball and he had moved, transitioned to that role because it was going up two classifications um, and just trying to get into a different district. And while he was there, the varsity assistant, he was going through some interviews and he, the varsity assistant at the time, took a different job. So um, me and the other coach, Mike Gallegos, we actually lived in the same apartment complex. And uh, so he called me down and said, hey, come on down. So I walked down the street and go down to his apartment says, are, are you, you know, how bad do you want to stay? Or are you interested in, you know, doing something different? Because we had always, I had always asked him, if you leave, you're taking me with you. So um, I ended up talking uh, through a lot of different things. And I, I was a little upset at the time because with him leaving, it opened up the baseball job and all the other guys who were on his staff had left. So even though I was the only I was only a volunteer assistant, I was the only guy left. And a lot of the kids and a lot of the parents and, you know, even the other coaches, they thought that I should be the next baseball coach at Pilot Point. And I, I was involved in the process and it was kind of a, you know, if we don't find anybody else we like, then it's yours. But we're going to go through the interview and we want you to be a part. And uh, so they ended up going with somebody else. And I was going to I was actually going to move up that year to be his assistant. Um, but with this opportunity to move up to classification, so it's basically the same job, uh, but move up in classification. It's kind of one of those things, opportunities that I had to jump for, um, there, you know, there was a bump in pay. I did talk to my former head football coach in high school and we talked through a lot and, you know, he kind of said, this is the last decision you're going to be able to make because it was, uh, you know, just me and my girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife. Um, but I knew that it was on that track. And from that point on, you know, once we get married, every job that I take is not just mine, it's mine and hers. And so it's going to be taken with the thought process of more time or more money for uh, me and the family. And I I was kind of weighing my options. And I, so I ended up taking the job. Uh, I took the varsity assistant. He stayed the JV coach until he left um, a little bit later in the summer. So I actually didn't get to work with him anymore. Um, but yeah, it was the, the varsity baseball assistant. Uh, it was also the head freshman coach. I was the, for football, I was the assistant wide receivers coach. Um, I jumped in uh, and did a couple different things, kind of quality control um, for football. And I've always done the stats uh, as far as baseball goes. Uh, Scott McGar, the guy who brought me on, he's been fantastic in growing me as a coach. I'm so glad that I didn't get the head coaching job at Pilot Point at the time. And when it came open the next year and I thought about going back, I'm so glad I didn't take it 
and we we've had a lot of conversations about this. I probably could have made it through, but I wasn't ready. Um, you know, I, I thought I was, uh, and that's the one thing that I know the difference now. Um, you know, at the time I thought I was ready to be a head coach and I don't think I was now. I know that I'm not going to be ready to be a head coach until I actually get put into the position. And so it's kind of a backwards way of thinking. But now that I know that I'm not ready to be a head coach until I have that HC by my name, I feel like I'm ready to be a head coach, if that makes any sense at all in any convoluted way. Um, But he brought me on. He threw a lot of responsibility to me. Um, I've coached third base and run our offense. Uh, I do our strength conditioning. I plan our practices. I, I work on a lot of our off season, even though I'm not there 100% of the time. Um, I'm, I structure kind of everything and I kind of guide him and how things need to look. There are a lot of things that he does um, to take some of that off my plate, obviously, because I'm coaching football and he's just running off season because he doesn't have football responsibilities. Um, so we do all that stuff. And uh, my first year I was with the infielders I took outfielders my second year, and then I'm back to infielders now that our head coach's son is in the program, and he's an infielder. So he didn't want to coach him. Um, I've been coaching him the past couple – he's done a fantastic job. But that first year where he was with the outfielders, you know, I was kind of working with him on stuff that I had done in the past. So it's been a very cool experience because he's allowed me to really grow as a head coach without being a head coach. Um, it's funny how that works because a lot of times like one of the things I hear from a lot of coaches is like when they get their first head coaching job, they weren't ready at all. And so you're talking about like, you know, at pilot point, like wanting to be the head coach, not getting it, then thinking about going back that next year when it opens up, maybe not going for it and how it all just kind of seemed to work out and put you in a spot where you're doing a lot of it sounds like anyway, you're doing a lot of quote unquote head coach duties, but kind of all in preparation because at some point when you, like you said, when you have the HC by your name, you actually will be ready. Whereas a lot of us just get thrust in a little bit before we probably should. And, and that's one of those things that coach McGar, he's really done um, a, he, a fantastic job of. He had an experience when he was an assistant, um, you know, it took a long time for him to be given responsibility. Uh, I won't throw his coach under the bus. He, he's a guy that I love to death. Um, and, and he knows everything that we talk about too. Um, but coach McGar, when he was an assistant, he wasn't given as much responsibility. And so he always said that when he had his assistants, he was going to do it very different and grow his coaches, um, you know, in a different way. And as opposed to a, let me show you and you watch, you know, he kind of threw me in. Will I do it the exact same way? Probably not. I'll probably take a, uh, a multi level approach and I'll incorporate a lot of what he's done. I'll probably take some different things just because him and I are a little bit different stylistic, but uh, I I am thoroughly 100% thankful for the way that he grew me uh, because now I do feel like I will be okay when I do get that HC put by my name. I think that's one of the hardest parts about being a head coach is trying to figure out how much you it's like this weird part because you have assistants, you you want them to feel valued. You want them to have um, 
power is not the right word, but you know kind of what I'm getting at. You want them to feel like mm-hmm. they have a say in how things go. At the same time, I, the last thing I want to do is overburden one of my assistants and feel like I don't want him to feel like he's having to do everything while I'm just you know kicking back in my chair, relaxing, watching everything unfold, right? So it's just this weird. And then at the same time, as the head coach, you ultimately everything, uh, you know, eventually at some point falls on your shoulders. So it is kind of a weird position to be in where you're trying to figure out how much responsibility to give away. But I think in your case, like you're saying, like it's been such a gift to be able to have all this, have all these experiences where you are getting all these head coaching uh, kind of roles within it. Yeah. He, so when I first came in, we were supposed to be very, very good. And there were some adverse situations that happened um, that kind of, it caused us to play a lot of sophomores. And I think that allowed um, a bit of a safety net just because there was room. I mean, we were all growing together. I was growing as a coach. Those sophomores were growing into varsity baseball. Um, You know, the the season, I don't want to say it it didn't get pulled out from us before it even started, but there were a lot of adverse scenarios that we had to overcome. Um, But I think he's always kind of had that safety net there, like, at the end of the day, it is his program, and the buck stops with him. We butted heads a little bit because it took me a while to kind of figure out how he wanted things to be done. Um, it was funny. There was a, It was about halfway through that first season when we were both kind of on the same page with how the offense was going to run and what we needed to do. And every year it's grown, grown since then. Uh, we actually had a fantastic year. This past year offensively, um, we were kind of firing on all cylinders because we were just in the same boat. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, and it took me a little bit because uh, I can be a little stubborn, um, <laughs> but to remember that the buck does stop with him. And the the thing that him and I, I, I appreciate more than anything, and I think he does as well, you know, anytime we have had issues, we've never done it in front of the kids. It's always behind closed doors. And one thing about him is it's over as soon as we stop talking about it. Like we can literally be butting heads and going at it. And, you know, it it can get a little, I don't know if it ever gets heated, but it can be frustrating to both of us. But literally as soon as we're done talking about that conversation, the next second we're back to, you know, how's your family? Everything good at home? We all good. Like there's no need to go back and say, Hey, I'm sorry about this or that. It's like, no, it's, it's squash. It's over. We're moving on. Um, because we understand that we're growing each other. Um, because that's one thing that I love about working with him too. He brought me to ABCA because he is a learner. So it's not like, and obviously with him moving to outfielders, something that he's never done before, he's willing to, kind of take coaching from me because he had never done that before. Um, And that's kind of always where we've been. We're going to work together so that we can be better for our kids and our kids are going to grow with us. Uh, It's always been behind closed doors when we're going through some stuff, but you know, we've, we've got a great working relationship and we've got a great relationship off the field as well. So um, that that's been super helpful with all of it. Yeah. I'm sure you guys have like conversations about, philosophy and situational stuff does it ever get into like culture I don't know like team standards or things like that are you involved in those discussions in 100% direction the program goes yeah 
100%. That was one of the things um, when I came in, that was kind of one of the things that we were doing together. There had been a lot of uh, winning tradition, uh, recent. Uh, you know, they, they did some great things in 2013, 2014, 2015. Made the playoffs in uh, 2016. We got knocked out in the first round. And there was a bit of a – I think there was a culture shift and, and he'll be the first to, to recognize it. Um, but that was one of the biggest things that we did was we really started to go back and say, you know, we're, we're going to have our standards. We're going to have our expectations. Um, we're going to have the kids rise to those. And that's one of the things that I think we're both most proud of is the fact that we have really worked really, really, really hard Um to where the culture is what it is. Um, you know, we've, we've been complimented multiple times by not just our own parents. We've got a fantastic set of parents that um, they understand what we're trying to do and they, they support us quite a bit. Um, some support us a little bit more than others, but that's okay. Um, but one of my biggest deals is the game is meant to be played a certain way and it involves a heavy, heavy dose of respect you can have fun and I want them to have fun. And I, I don't want to, you know, I do come from my dad's background. So I do have a bit of an older uh, view of the game, but I've had conversations with my dad actually um, recently because he's, he's coached with me. And so we have conversations just about, yes, the game is a little bit, it's changing a little bit, uh, but it's not just changing for the sake of change. It's changing for the, better you know it, it is a game he's always told me that it's a game it's meant to be fun you should be having fun if you're not having fun get out because it's too hard mentally physically and emotionally so we want these kids to have fun while respecting the game and it is a balance but that's one of the things that I love about you know the group that just graduated um really so that first group of sophomores that I came into they graduated two years ago yes and they really laid the foundation for what things were supposed to look like their senior year. We struggled, but they were respectful. They played, they respectful to the game and to their opponents. Um, they had fun with each other, uh, but they really laid the foundation for what the culture was going to be like. And every year it's gotten better to where this past year it was so I could sit back in third base. They, they ran things, those kids, they played the game. Now there was some high talent there. We we're bringing back our junior or our senior shortstop. He was a junior. Uh, he's gonna he's committed to Texas Tech. We had a pitcher who he's at Nebraska right now. We didn't think he was ever gonna hit for us. He actually played outfield in first base and sat in the middle of our order. Uh, we got another kid who came on late. Really was the heartbeat of our team, and he was a late sign to McLennan. Uh, he was our catcher, pitcher, three hole. But those guys, and we, we had an outfielder who's uh, at the Naval Academy right now, uh, who's a pitcher as well. I mean, those guys really led the culture and they had good supporting pieces that really bought into their roles. We had a center fielder who at times we had a hit for, um, you know, I had conversations and I never expected him to be happy about it, but he bought into the culture and, and it was shaped in such a way that he understood the best thing for the team was for him to play center field and for this other kid to get the at-bats because we needed somebody different at first base. And so they just – they really matured, 
And Coach McGar, it wasn't just him involved in that. It was really him and I and the other coaches on our staff, Kenny Shumo. Um, you know, Justin Lopez has been with us. He's actually going to softball this past year. Ryan Houston, he was a, a middle school volunteer. They, We've all been super instrumental. And that's one thing that I love about Coach McGar, too, is it's not Coach McGar and I are with a varsity and Coach Shumo's with the JV and Coach Lopez with the freshmen and Coach Houston's with the pitchers. It's we're with everybody and all because we understand that we've got to really invest with those freshmen because those freshmen are going to be seniors before we know it. We tell them every year, all those freshman parents don't blink because it'll be here before you know it. And it's the same for the players. And so if we just focus on those varsity guys and let the other coaches do their thing, it's not all, it's all got to flow in together. And so we all really have to be Red Hawk coaches, not just, varsity freshman JV coaches. Um, and because we do that, I think that's been the biggest thing that's led to the the culture change because we are all on the same page from the backup catcher on the freshman team to the starting pitcher on the varsity. We're all going in the same direction. And because we're all rolling the boat the same way, we're getting there a lot faster. So that's one of the biggest like areas of growth I have like for a goal for myself this upcoming year is trying to be a lot better and a lot more intentional about uh, kind of what you're talking about. Like all coaches are, are part of all teams because like, it's so easy to just, I'm coaching the varsity kids. I've got no time to do the rest. Like I got to focus on these guys. Uh, if I, you know, if I'm holding practice and I'm doing a combined practice where the, you know, the freshman NJV kids are there now, now my varsity guys are getting less swings, right? It's that kind of mm-hmm. mentality that I, my first few years as a head coach, I got away with it because we were so talented. But then at some point, like you're saying, those freshmen are going to become the varsity players. And if you haven't been investing in them as a whole group, like your program's going to suffer as a result of that. And I've kind of seen that a little bit. And so it's, it's for me, it's one of my biggest areas of growth as a goal of just like, I need to be a lot more intentional about making our program a more holistic program that includes everybody, not just the varsity coaches coaching, you know, the, the varsity kids. Yeah, it's been a big balance. You know, I probably was on the other end of that seesaw um, for a little bit there. When we were first trying to go through this change, uh, it was everything all together all the time, almost. Not quite, but almost. Um, you know, it's it's been a big change. And we, we now have a pretty good balance to where the younger guys are getting field time with all the coaches the younger guys are also spending some time with the older guys. That way the older guys are kind of serving as our coaches. Um, you know, we, we've structured practice a couple different ways on a couple different days. That way each team can get what they need individually. Um, but we can also get that full program practice time, you know, where the older guys are helping out with the younger guys and the younger guys are exposed and seeing what the older guys are doing and, you know, trying to make sure that we're all on the same page. And, you know, in the off season, that's where a lot of it's built because we're all in the weight room together. You know, we split up once we get in season because we're giving guys different things. Uh, but but the, the weight room has been a huge opportunity for those older guys to work with those younger guys and make sure that uh, they're doing things right and they're holding them to standards while we're in the weight room. And that's where everything – Coach McGarr and I are both in agreement on this. We're – 90% of where the culture is driven 
starts in the weight room. Mm-hmm. And so having those older guys working with the younger guys, uh, that's where a lot of it starts and ends for us. So we take it out to the field, obviously, but it all it all re- returns back, excuse me, um, to the weight room at some point. Yeah, the weight room is is huge, like absolutely huge for for building that environment and off season, like you're mentioning, also a huge time to include all those different players and get them, you know, coaching each other, being exposed to each other, having the coaches around that sort of thing. Um, you know, as we're kind of getting close to the hour mark, I wanted to go back to something you said a long time ago, which was um, minoring in sports psychology. And I thought, well, since we have you on here, let's just let's just get into it real quick. What are you know, what's something you've learned from that way back when or just along the way for sports psychology um, that you've kind of implemented as a coach in terms of coaching kids? It's been a long time since that minor. You know, I I actually don't have the minor. I only have the uh, I, I majored in math with a concentration in secondary education. But I do remember some of those psych classes early on and, you know, it was all education based. And that's where I I think it's Maslow's. I I forget all the different people that are involved in all the different, you know, pyramids and hierarchies and everything like that. But the biggest one, and we use it so much um, on the teaching side, is making sure there's a sense of safety and security. I mean, until you have that in the kids, it doesn't matter what you do. Um, you can get that a lot of different ways, though. And that's one thing that I think a lot of people, you know, I, I know the saying they won't uh, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Um, but I go back to something I think I, I'm pretty sure it was Butch Chaffin. You know, you can always bet that he probably had something to do with something on <laughs> any front. Yeah. Um, but I want to I want to say he put something out there that you can gain a lot of you can let the kids know that you care by having some content knowledge too, because if you don't have any content knowledge, they ain't going to care either. So you've got to be able to show that, you know, a little bit, um, you know, and obviously there's a delicate balance there because they do need to know that you care about them, but you need to know what you're talking about too. Um, and you need to be able to show them that a little bit. So, um, having that, and I think that lies into the safety and security, like nobody wants to go play for somebody that has no idea what they're talking about. You know, you've got to let the kids know that you do have a base of knowledge, but at the same time, and I use this in my classroom every year, I tell my kids, guys, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to go up to the board and I'm going to write plus one instead of minus one, or my addition is going to be off, or I'm going to write something different. I make mistakes just like you do. Um, And letting them know that you're human and letting them see those mistakes, like don't brush them off or try and cover them up. Like, no, own it because then they can relate to you. Uh, I, I can't remember where I saw it, but it, this was another thing I saw recently. If they don't see you making mistakes or they don't realize that you make mistakes, then you're not relatable to them. It was actually at our convocation yesterday, uh, you know, for, for Frisco ISD. Um, the guy was saying if they see you as perfect, then they can't relate to you because they're not perfect. So you have to show some of your chinks in your armor, um, for them to feel safe and like, okay, I can get to know, I can work with this person because I can relate to them. So, um, you know, and that, that kind of all boils in together. I think, I I think I might've danced around it a little bit. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest things is making sure that the kids, when they're with you before they go anywhere, 
before they start whatever, make sure that there's a sense of safety and security with what you're doing. Well, and with with the availability for people to go find stuff online now, I'm talking like an old person, but you know the idea that uh, you know your your player can take something you said and go, I don't know if that's true, and they can go tonight after practice and look it up and find out that oh, that's that's not true at all, and. Mm-hmm you know, how you respond to that is super important. And then, like you said, to, to keep learning as a coach and to be on top of it and to know stuff and know why so that when kids ask you questions about something, why are we, you know, why are we teaching it this way? Or, you know, why is this something you should be able to answer that? Cause like you're saying, no kid wants to play for somebody who is just like, well, that's just the way we do it. You know, and that's different than saying, you know, I I don't know, but let me find out. I'll go find out and I can get back to you. Correct. And that was one of the things I was about to follow up with is that's a totally okay response. And I tell my kids at the beginning of the year in the geometry classroom, like, if I don't know something, I'm not going to tell you some, you know, made up something or other. I'm going to let you know. I don't know, but I'm going to find out and I'll get back with you. Yeah. And that's a huge, that's a huge thing for them too, because now they're seeing, wow, not only is he admitting that he doesn't know something, like that's a big deal that, like you said, it humanizes you as a coach, as a teacher, as an adult. But then also it's like, and he's also willing to go figure it out too, which is a big deal, uh, which I think all plays into it uh, and, and kind of being a good good teacher and a good coach. Um, before I let you go, since you, you, see, you, know, you seem very, from the outside looking in, um, very on top of it in terms of um, – how to be a, a good assistant coach, how to have conversations with the head coach, how to have disagreements, um, how to you know do whatever's best for the, the kids that you're coaching. So as somebody who's been doing it for a little while and has a level of success at a couple of different schools doing it, um, and plus your middle school experience, you know, for somebody who's breaking in to their first you know, job as an assistant coach, what, what advice would you kind of send their way? Come in with a blank slate. Obviously, you want to bring your knowledge to the table, but listen. You know, you got two ears, one mouth. Be sure to listen before you you just go out there and speak. Um, you know, take what you can from everybody. That was one thing that I got from my dad is you can learn. You're going to learn something that you want to keep, or you're going to learn something that you don't want to use. But you can learn something from everybody about anything. So make sure that you're always looking and you're always looking to learn. Um, and again, you don't have to keep everything. It might not be your style, uh, but make sure that you're at least paying attention and trying to think, can I do it this way? Does this fit into what I'm doing or do I need to go in a different direction? Um, I'm a big devil's advocate guy. So I think that's one thing that's helped me out a lot. I, I know it gets very annoying for uh, not only the guys that I coach with, but also my wife. <laughs> um, but, but I always try and play both sides um, because I think that until you see the other side of things, you can't say something is good or something is bad. Um, you need to at least try and find why somebody does what they do, do or why somebody teaches what they teach. You know, I got to make sure that I approach things a lot of it is just in tone. And so I can learn how somebody's speaking. Um, and, and that's a that's a big one is paying attention to your tone and making sure that you understand that a player's perception is that player's reality. So making sure that you are being crystal clear in your communication um, 
you know, that, that's going to be a big one too. So I, I kind of rambled. I tend to do that sometimes, but um, I think that that's probably the best that I can give to uh, an incoming assistant coach. I think it's good stuff. And I think it, you make a good point. I know there's, um, there's like, there, there's this opportunity, you know, with you and your dad kind of making the same point, there's opportunity now that we have all this access to all this information to want to like take all of it and, you know, implement all of it and just do everything. And as a coach, I think one of the biggest things you have to be able to do is to understand what you you guys are both talking about, which is what you do like and what you don't like and being smart about both. I always think back to like, I don't know if you ever saw it, but that is a few years ago now, I think, but there's a video of um, Mike Trout and he's got like the high T set up and he's swinging mm-hmm. kind of down at it. Yep. And, and, even my first thought watching is like, well, that's stupid. Like, why is he doing that? That's not what he's getting. And then, you know, at some point you have to sit back and think, okay, this is the best baseball player on the planet. There must be something to that thought, to that process that obviously works for him. And it's really easy. Like you're saying as a coach to just look at it and say, well, that doesn't fit in with what I believe and here's why. So I'm just not going to use it. And it's like, well, now wait a second. That's the best player on the planet. And he does that. There's gotta be something to it. No doubt. And that like, it's very hard for me to pick any side. There's so much of baseball that goes in the, in the middle. Um, you know, and that's one of those things that I've, I've had a lot of conversation with my dad about. It's been a blast having him as my assistant the past couple of summers for you know, summer ball um, because it's a different dynamic and we, we chop it up in the dugout a lot, but you know, the idea because it gets convoluted because people don't, they're not clear in their communication you know, the idea of a quote unquote launch angle swing, what is that? What are we talking about here? And then we go into a, a, an angle is not a swing. It's just a path and all this stuff. And so I'm talking to my dad about it. And, you know, we're talking about the pros and minuses and all this stuff of just the, the communication piece. And if you sit down and talk through it, like, oh, it actually makes some sense. But you have to make sure you're using the right word for the right scenario. And so now he understands, like, you can't just say launch angle swing because that's not a thing. Right. Um, you know, a launch angle is a measurement after the swing. And once he kind of understands that and you understand, like, Butch Chaffin, I want uh, a line drive, you know, over the infield in front of the outfield. That's how he talks about it. Uh, Art Sonato, he got it. You know, he wants something. Uh, it, it's um, – what is it? I know it talks about direction. Um, but basically you want, you want some authority behind the baseball with good direction to it. So, I mean, as, as long as you're, you, you have to know the language that you're using, uh, but you also have to know the person, the, the person's understanding of the language that you're speaking to mm-hmm. and make sure that you're on an equal playing field there. Otherwise you're just going to run round and round, which is in my opinion, 90% of where all the arguments stem from yeah. on those. I mean, it's just because we don't know what the other person is talking about. So, but, but you're 100% right. If Mike Trout is doing, if any big leader is doing yeah. something, they probably has some merit because you can't sit here and say that that guy sucks. Cause even though he might be hitting a buck 20, he's been hitting a buck 20 in the big leagues. And yeah. I know it's better than what I'm going to hit. So you know, those are the best guys in the world. Even if they're not good for that level, they're the best guys in the world. So you can't say they suck. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mike Trout probably could say some of the other guys in the league suck, 
but yeah. he's not going to do that because <laughs> he's who he is. That's so. right. Yeah, it's, maybe that's why I have a problem when I go to like professional games and people are like heckling Major League Baseball players, and I'm like, well, no, that guy's like that guy. That player is the best guy that his community has ever seen. Like nobody has ever seen a better baseball player than him. Like he got here for a reason. But yeah, yep. I hear what you're saying. Uh, Nikki, I'm glad we were able to do this. I know both of us had some scheduled things come up. And then obviously with, with summer ball for both of us, that adds another uh, layer to it. So I appreciate that uh, both of us were able to sit down and, and, and talk through some stuff together. Really appreciate it. Um, before I let you go, I want to do you know kind of what I always try to do is just give you the mic one more time. And if there's anything we missed or any points that you want to drive home or, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, just kind of hand it over to you one last time. Um, yeah, no, 100%. Thank you for having me on. I'm glad we were able to get it done. Um, it, it's been a blast talking with you. It, it doesn't say, I, I can't believe it's been over an hour already. I um, know <laughs> it goes so fast. Yes. Uh, but you put something out there. Um, I know in your, in your newsletter recently about umpires and it mm-hmm. kind of goes with something that I was already, it was kind of on my mind that I want to talk about. I've been diving back into the Simon Sinek podcast and he hadn't done one in a little bit, but one of his ones fairly recently was just talking about, you know, you don't it with something that is an infinite game. You don't have a, you don't win. You just perpetuate the game and you just keep playing. And I was really relating that, you know, he talked about it uh, a couple different ways. Um, you know, if he said, what's the opposite of winning or losing. And some people would say not playing and, you know, his version or the, the person he was talking to was talking about, no, it, it's to play the game. You know, if you don't win or you don't you lose, you just play. And in an infinite game, you, you're you not – there's not a winner, there's not a loser. You just keep playing. You stay in the game longer. Um, and I, I think we're at a crux uh, in baseball where we're trying to find a way to perpetuate the game because I've heard a lot of people say that it's kind of on its way out. Uh, and, and I don't agree with that, but we have to find ways to continue to perpetuate the game and to relate that to what you're talking about with umpires. Um, you know, I think how we deal with umpires can, I mean, obviously if we don't have them, we can't play the game. And if you want the better umpires, you can't get, you can't knock down the umpires who aren't quite there um, because they're going to grow into better umpires. So making sure that, you know, how the players, how the coaches handle umpires is going to be huge. Um, you know, I, I think that anytime I, I'm an I'm an eternal optimist and I'm a highly positive guy. So I try and uh, echo that in my speech patterns. Um, but I, I kind of feel like when there's negativity thrown out there, it kind of permeates. So, you know, there could be an eight year old in the stands watching the game and it, if all somebody's doing is being negative to the umpire sitting right next to that kid. I think that negativity towards the umpire kind of gets permeated into the game. And now there's just a sour taste in the mouth. Um, I don't know if there's any research or anything to back that up. Uh, but I, I really have a thing about how to treat umpires and um, being positive with them. Uh, you know, before every game, I want to know their name. I write it on my uh, card that I keep in my back pocket, make sure every player, knows their name. Uh, it, it's amazing how many umpires are called blue. Uh, mm-hmm. At least that's the way it, it seems. Uh, they, they have names. 90% of the time, they're not even wearing a blue shirt unless it's, you know, the middle <laughs> of summer. That's true. 
Um, so why are we calling these guys by a color when they have a name? You know, I don't want to be called red because I'm wearing a red shirt. So let, let, let's get to know these guys' names. Let's call them by their names. Let's be respectful. They're doing the best they can. Nobody comes out to third base when I get a kid hosed at third, you know, and wears me out. The umpire certainly isn't. So why am I getting – I made a mistake in the box. If I got heckled for every mistake I made and I felt like I, you know, I'd hate that. I'm sure it happens, but I don't hear it. Um, and I don't need to hear it. Just like the umpire, he they don't need to know. So, um, you know, treat those guys with respect. Make sure you're using their names in, in, in a respectful manner. Um, you know, there are ways to talk to a guy to figure figure out what's going on. 90%, really, 99% of the time, they just want to get the call right. So if you go out there and you're respectful to them, they're willing to work with you. Um, you know, I, I've had some great umpires this past summer. I had one recently that's brand new that I really hope gets in our chapter. Uh, he's still in college right now. Been doing it for six months. Great mechanics, assertive. I mean, solid umpire. I'm looking forward to when he grows up. But we had another guy. He's a, he's an older gentleman uh, by the name of Doug. And we had him once, and he made a comment about how he appreciated the way I was coaching. I was talking to him throughout the game and making sure that, you know, he knew that I respected him and I was appreciative that he was there. We have him, you know, two or three weeks later. There are some bang-bang plays that happened to go our way. Was it because I had already, you know, built up a relationship and he remembered me? I don't know. Uh, subconsciously, maybe. I don't think he made a point to say, oh, well, I like that guy, so I'm going to give him the call. But there's something about the subconscious that comes to fruition. You know, if you tend to like a guy, you tend to make things go their way. So, you know, I'm not trying to say skate, you know, you use, use it to your advantage. You can use it to your advantage. Don't, you know, abuse that. But, you know, come from a, a genuine place of respect. Um, treat those guys with respect because like I was saying about the, we've got to keep this game going. It is a great, it is the best game. You know, it's the only one that really, in my opinion, it, it, it's the perfect example for life because no matter what happened the day before, you got to show up to work that day. Um, and with 162 games and 180 days in the big leagues, that's what it is. That's why it's the grind because you've got to keep showing up and you got to get the work done no matter what's going on outside. Um, it, it's not just show up once a week. You got to show up every day. And if we want to keep showing up every day, we've got to have these umpires around to call the games. And so uh, that's a, that's a big passion of mine. I'm super glad that you put that in the newsletter the other day. Uh, you know, I, I'm excited for the future because I do believe that, you know, that's one of the next things that we're going to, uh, you know, run into as a coaching community. It, it's been, uh, I think, clean dugouts lately. Mm -hmm. um, there's people that are kind of making jokes about that now. But I think the next step, you know, yes, we need to take care of the facilities. We need to take care of the guys that are calling the game. So that's that's a big one for me. And that's kind of where I'd like to close out. That's been heavy on my heart lately. No, I love it. I, I, I've just noticed the age of umpires getting older and older and seeing less and less young guys out there. And I just know, like you said, man, we, we don't get to play if, if we don't have them. And 
to not treat other humans like humans is just super bizarre to me. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about it too. And I'm glad you went that direction. I love it. Um, like I said, Mickey, really appreciate you. I wish you guys the best of luck as you dive into football and then, you know, obviously in the off season fall workouts for baseball and heading into next spring. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Max, I can't thank you enough for having me. I appreciate it. Big guy. All right. So I'm sure there are a lot of head coaches out there right now who listened to Mickey and thought to themselves, wow, right? If only every assistant coach had the drive to be as involved as he is. But here's the thing. I think there's a big takeaway that I hope all of you got over the course of that conversation. And it's that an assistant coach needs the freedom and space required to grow into that role. And he has to have the freedom to fail as well. It doesn't mean you can't have conversations, doesn't mean you can't help him, but they need that freedom and space. So. Head coaches, my plea to you, and I'm talking to myself here too, is to give away more responsibilities to your assistants. Do that, and let's just see how much they grow. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode as much as they enjoyed the third HS Coaches Club Twitter chat this past Tuesday. If you missed it, head up to the search bar on Twitter and type in hashtag HS Coaches Club, then click latest. You'll be able to dive right in as if you were there. The next chat will be Tuesday, August 31st at 9 p.m. Eastern. And if you aren't signed up for the weekly newsletter or if you haven't picked up some High School Coaches Club stickers, you should definitely do so. Head on over to highschoolcoachesclub.com to get started. Don't forget to leave a rating or review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And most importantly, if you found any value at all from this episode or any previous episode, please share it to your followers on social media, via email, call someone, text someone, doesn't matter. Just share the episode with somebody. Let's try to grow this club a little bit more. Huge fist bump to Mickey Sapanic for jumping on the call with me. Thanks again to Netting Pros for sponsoring the episode and to you for clicking that play button. If you have any recommendations for people who should be guests on the show, be sure to reach out to me, even if that recommendation is you. Follow the club on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at HS Coaches Club. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Max Price and can reach me via email, max at highschoolcoachesclub.com. All right, that's it. That's all I've got. You're awesome. You matter. Thanks for all you do. And as Coach Lee would say, loving you. <laughs>